Spot On is supported by the Boston University Sargent College's Master of Science degree in Nutrition program. Log on to bu.edu to learn more about this fabulous nutrition graduate program. You are listening to Spot On, a health and wellness podcast that breaks through the latest media headlines to provide you with accurate and usable information that is, well, spot on, spot on to meet your needs. I am your host, Dr. Joan Salji Blake, a nutrition professor at Boston University and the author of the college textbook called Nutrition and You, which is used in colleges across the United States and abroad. We're hearing so much about this hot trend, this new diet eating pattern called clean eating. And I'm excited because this episode is going to look at what are the real clean facts about clean eating. Before we start, let's go to the streets and find out what folks think about clean eating. Clean eating food means homemade, um, delicious kind of nutritious food. Clean eating is probably the most balanced diet of our generation. The clean food reminds me of the dining hall on campus. All the student workers there need to change their gloves when they change the food station and also when they come back from the restroom. Sounds like eating something that's clean, like less processed. I, I really have no idea what it is. When you eat an apple or some fruit, you should peel it or clean or like wash it under like filter water and then eat it instead of just grab it and eat it. I have no idea what clean eating means. For me, clean eating is eating healthy. So if I don't eat chocolate chips every time, that means clean eating for me. Clean eating means eating fresh food and uh, eating out of clean plates and bowls. I think clean eating means you choose more healthier food not junk food and not high calories, something like that. My guest today on Spot On is Dr. Paula Quattromoni, and she is a nutrition faculty member at Boston University Sargent College, and she's the creator of the nutrition consulting service for student athletes uh, here at the university. But I want to tell you something fascinating about her. She called this whole issue with sports and disordered eating way before anybody else did. So she is very, very familiar with that field. And this kind of sort of dieting and clean eating, as we, we're going to learn more about there. So Dr. Quattromoni, thank you for coming on Spot On. Thank you, Joan. I'm so excited to be here. Great. You know, I have to tell you, you know, I always do a little bit of homework beforehand, and I was looking at the International Food Information Council, and every year they do these health surveys. And I, I have to tell you, I think you probably know the answer to this, the top eating pattern for 2019 is clean eating. So it's a more, more, I went higher, more popular than intermittent fasting, the keto diet, the gluten-free diet, paleo diet, the vegetarian diet, which, which by the way, we have episodes on all these types of diet. So clean eating is here and it is popular. Can you tell me what 
is lean eating. Yeah, sure. It, well, basically, it refers to eating foods in their most natural, whole, and purest form. So um, whole fruits and vegetables are a real foundation of this diet, foods that have not been adulterated in, in any way in terms of food processing, foods that don't have sugar added to them, fats added to them, sodium, other preservatives, artificial colors, flavorings. So it's really getting towards... Um, Again, foods in as as they are grown and harvested, and you know, farm to table, garden to plate. That's really at the crux of clean eating. You know, it's funny you should say that farm to table because the processing is not a bad word. Or no. in this case, it's not a dirty word if you want to talk about clean eating because all food is processed. You have almonds; they've been processed, and and just because they've been processed, it doesn't mean that's bad news. When you look at milk, right? Your milk is pasteurized so that it kills the bacteria that can make you sick. Have you ever had food poisoning? Yes, I oh, have. Yes, not a day at the beach. <laughs> no, no, not a day at the beach. So milk is pasteurized to kill that. We don't want you drinking raw milk. In fact, that's been advised right. not to do that. You can get sick, and also when you say additives, well, vitamin D is added to milk. Exactly. So, so it's not like, you know, just because it's been processed or it's been changed, it could be changed for the good. So I, that's why I find this so interesting about this whole clean eating movement. And, and really, what is behind it? What, where did this come about? Well, one of the issues, just to get back to what you were talking about before, is that it's the, the approach to clean eating sets up this dichotomy of good food, bad food. Right. And so where do the foods fall in the middle, like milk. Yes, it's an important source of protein, calcium, vitamin D, you know, that's in things that are added to that food to make it more nutritious for our health and well-being. But people get concerned about how the cows are treated with hormones and, you know, right. antibiotics and things. And so quickly a food, an entire food group of all dairy foods becomes, you know, not acceptable to a person who is, you know, trying to eat clean because it immediately puts it into the bad food category. So there's a lot of food fears and sort of distrust for the food industry, for farmers, for for restaurants, for manufacturers in terms of how food is prepared and processed. And, you know, feeding on fears and anxieties, um, you know, causes people to really become more obsessive. And that's when it can start to tip into some more of the disorders, which we'll talk about. But in terms of what's behind it, you know, we are health crazed in, in, a, in a purposeful, intentional way. People are really trying to promote wellness, to protect their health, to prevent disease. We have more access now to health information than ever. It's at our fingertips. And so, again, in an appropriate way, clean eating usually starts off very well intentioned in terms of promoting health and wellness. It's when it goes down a slippery slope and can become more of an obsessive disorder or a disordered eating pattern and progress into a full-blown eating disorder. But at its, you know, most pure sense, it really is well-intentioned in terms of, you know, a plant-based diet and eating minimally processed foods. And so that's where we have to make sure that we have the proper checks and balances that we don't end up with clean eating gone awry, right. which can go down right. it. What, what you said and is very, very common, you often hear on the street, is it's a good food, bad food. Mm -hmm. and when did we just have two categories of food? Right. Last time I looked, there was five food groups. So all of a sudden now we're back down to two groups. And, and the issue is good food, bad food. When did eating become a moral issue here? I mean, seriously, I mean, this is just, it, and it isn't that black and white, it isn't that good or bad. I I mean, 
all food is delicious. Right. And it's a delicious way to feed and fuel your body, which we've talked about multiple, multiple times. So to me, it sounds like it's getting to an extreme. Yes. And that's what we're missing out on, because certainly we are in pursuit of nutritional quality. Right. But when we're putting the purity of the food in a value judgment, not only on the food, but on the people who consume those foods. I mean, part of when clean eating goes into a disordered category is this sort of superiority, like you know, I would never put that food in my body or you're eating right. that, like passing right. judgment on other people. And so the enjoyment of food has gone out the window because it's all about purity, natural, righteousness, superiority, judgment, and putting foods in those very black and white categories, which makes your eating patterns extremely rigid. And more and more foods get put onto the do not eat list. Right. And what you end up, you know, in the most extreme cases is people who will eat maybe no more than 10 foods because they have limited the variety so severely because of the rules and the rigidity around their eating that eating for pleasure, eating to celebrate, eating to be social, eating for, you know, what's in season and a colorful variety or you're on vacation and you're in a different part of the world and you're going to experience a different culture. When this goes to extremes, people don't make their food decisions based on any of those. In fact, they become unable to travel, unable to go to a friend's house for dinner, unable to experience a new cuisine. And so, so it's like we're saying you know, the food decisions are affecting their lifestyle decisions. Exactly. That's, that's, that's driving the bus here. Nobody understands how food is grown on a farm. Mm -hmm. And farmers love their animals. And farmers take care of their animals and take care of the crops. And they don't just make be mean to their animals or mean to the crops. So there's this perception that agriculture is bad and Mm -hmm. it's evil and everything, but it isn't. You know, hashtag hug a farmer because they feed you. And a lot of that is misinformation. And I see a lot of misinformation about why some foods aren't I just keep on saying bad for you, but why they believe it is. And a lot of that comes from celebrities, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. I mean, celebrities and diets, the words kind of go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, but celebrities, they are out there. They're in the public eye, whether it's the entertainment industry, professional sports, fashion, you know, um, you name it. And those industries are very much linked with a weight-focused, body-image-focused, thin ideal that's glamorized, mm-hmm. and it's desirable. Or fit, and it's, very fit. It's rewarded, right, right fit-spiration, right. all of that. Right. And so celebrities, professional athletes, they're always looking for that competitive edge, whether it's how to distinguish themselves in the marketplace or how to add to their multi-million dollar industry already by writing a book. Right. And, you know... We're going to talk a little bit about social media, but these people who have become influencers, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. they're influential because they have public attention. They don't have education necessarily. They don't have the training. They don't have the content expertise, and they don't have the professional credentials, but they can be out there saying, don't ever eat eggplant because it's a nightshade vegetable, and don't ever eat this. And, And, you know, it sways public behavior, and it's the... You know, it's a very efficient way at influencing people's behaviors in terms of living in in the limelight, in terms of magazines, social medias, and whatnot. And, you know, let's face it, uh, what gets 
retreated mm-hmm. or repeated or liked right. is when you say something outlandish that has no science right. background. The more bold you are, the more likely it will be retweeted. That's right. And that's that's your part. And more likely you, you become a more influencer, which is such a word. So it's like it's like it's snowball. So Absolutely. you could say crazy things like don't ever eat milk because mm-hmm. it's been pasteurized. We're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Pasteurized? That's what you want to eat. Exactly. You, know, you don't want to eat raw milk. You want pasteurized milk so you don't get sick. But that is the evil or the bad news of it always gets the retweets. And that's unfortunate. So that, that can make it really problematic. And I can imagine, like you said in the beginning, you start out with all good intentions. Okay, I'm going to eat clean. I'm going to have more fruits and vegetables, which is a good thing in my diet. Okay, that's great. And I'm going to maybe cook more at home and not go out to dinner, mm-hmm. and that's good. But maybe uh, then it gets to a point, Dr. Quartimoni, where it could get a problem. So tell me where it is, because we're talking about, you know, we've always been talking about when it came to weight management is the quantity of foods that you eat. But it seems like in this clean eating, it's really the quality. Yes, absolutely. So tell me how that can get to get to a point where it's not healthy. Right. Well, we actually have a term for that now. It's called orthorexia. And it is a type of disordered eating. Um, where there is restriction of food intake, but as you said, around the quality and the purity of the food, not around quantity. So it makes it different from other types of eating disorders that listeners might be more familiar with. Basically, orthorexia is an unhealthy obsession with healthy eating. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I mean, I don't love that is a that we have this problem, but that is an interesting way to say that again. I, it's an, an unhealthy obsession with healthy eating, and I can't can't take credit for that. That phrase was coined by a physician, um, Stephen Bratman from Colorado in 1997. Wow. So it's been around for a while. He was recognizing this in his patients that he was treating. And although orthorexia is not an official eating disorder diagnosis in the American Psychiatric Association's um, diagnosis, um, it is recognized as a clinical condition. It is requires intervention treatment. There are professionals who can treat this, and it's very serious because it has its own host of mental and physical um, consequences, just like any other eating disorder. You know, I I was looking at that. Ortho means, like, righteous and, you know, perfect, and orexia, a condition. So it's almost like you have a condition where Everything's got to be perfect all the time and righteous all the time. So what an interesting name that he gave to this. He coined this, and he saw it way back when. I'm shocked about that. I'm really, really shocked. Yes, and it it really does because, and this is where it goes awry from clean eating, because of the obsessive and the compulsive nature of it. So it's not uncommon for orthorexia to coexist either with an anxiety disorder Mm -hmm. or with something like obsessive compulsive disorder, Mm -hmm. OCD. Mm -hmm. And where it becomes more in the disorder category is when it interferes with the person's ability to live their life or to function in their daily living. So some of the things we were alluding to before, I can't go to my friend's house for dinner because I don't have control over the food supply. I don't know if all the food is organic and if, you know, if all of the food is whole food and pure. Um, I can't go to a restaurant. I can't go on vacation and travel. So when it interferes with your physical functioning, also people who suffer from this, it takes a tremendous toll on their emotional well-being and their ability to sleep and to function at work or at school as a student with a clear mind because you're constantly thinking about food 
in you know what you're going to allow yourself and where am I going to get food that's going to meet my rules and requirements and um, so much planning and mental energy that goes into that it really interferes with the person's well-being yeah it sounds like this could be like a full-time job yes absolutely uh, and and that's you know and wow you went to enjoying food for the number one reason we, we eat is taste you went from an enjoyable uh, way to fuel your body to where it becomes a job and it, more than that it starts like I said well-intentioned in the pursuit of health and wellness but ultimately when it gets to this phase where it's a disorder or it becomes a full-blown eating disorder there are you know risks of nutritional imbalances and malnutrition and all of the physical comorbidities of an eating disorder including death so people can wow. die from this disorder. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So it's more than just the mental energy spent, but it's also it also ramps up a person's anxiety, meaning again, anxiety medication might need to be added mm -hmm. to a mm -hmm. person's treatment profile or adjusted because the anxiety and the obsessive behaviors that sometimes can paralyze people from leaving their homes or eating in an environment you know can you go to that church picnic can you go to the tailgate at your son's football game right 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 so really a, a, a big factor and you know, when you said death i'm like oh my gosh death but when you you said before if you start narrowing down food choices to 10 foods and one of them may be water right. which by the way is processed too uh, <laughs> hello uh i mean you're right this could get to the point where you're just eating 10 foods yes. and it all may be from one food group, like 10 vegetables. Yes. And therefore, you're missing out on like protein and certain essential fatty acids and such. So you're right. This is, it, would you say it's like anorexia where you don't eat? Can you keep, yes. compare the two? They definitely have some similarities in, in the sense that they are all eating disorders or psychiatric illnesses, mm -hmm. even though they get manifested with food and nutrition and food choices. Can you explain um, that? What do you mean? Like, so is it something that is going wrong? You're worried about something else and you just manifest it in your food choices? Yes. Explain and that. so, so people, people have predispositions mm -hmm. to mental health conditions sure. like anxiety and mm -hmm. depression. And those are major precursors for developing other psychiatric conditions like an eating disorder. Okay. I get, you could put obsessive compulsive disorder mm -hmm. in there also it might make someone more prone to becoming orthorexic if they start on a clean eating journey, for right. example. So there is a genetic predisposition, but eating disorders are psychiatric illnesses. And so you can't just treat them, say, as a registered dietitian by educating someone about food and teaching them how to cook because you have to treat the underlying right. psychiatric disorder that is causing the person to be so... Um, obsessed in the case of say anorexia the obsession is usually around body image and mm -hmm. being you know smaller and losing weight and a, a, an entrenched fear of fat or becoming fat or gaining weight and so you don't just treat that with food and nourishment yes the dietitian is a part of the mm -hmm. treatment team but you can't do it without therapists right. and psychiatrists and a medical doctor on the team right. and so the same would go for orthorexia and what happens so both of the situations, eating disorders and orthorexia, they all usually involve some level of control. Okay. So in anorexia, I'm trying to control my food intake mm. to be a certain body shape and size, okay. usually smaller. That's usually driven by the thin ideal, mm -hmm. as opposed to bulimia, which might have a binging and a purging mm. behavior okay. to it, where again, a person is oftentimes living in a larger body, wanting to lose weight, doesn't you know, really know how to go around healthy weight management, but again, has these psychiatric 
predisposition where they are binging and purging and living a life in secret. So there's eating disorders in general have an element of control. I'm trying to control something that's out of control, whether it's my weight, my body image, my depression, my dissatisfaction, my low self-esteem. In an orthorexia case, trying to control the quality and right. the purity of the food I put into my body as a temple, right. for example. Right. And so the control issue and the predispositions towards, again, anxiety disorders are similar. But where they are different is that orthorexia usually does not have the weight-centered or the body image dissatisfaction at its core like the other eating disorders do. But clean eating, when you start cutting out whole food groups and lots of foods and processed foods, you're also cutting calories. And so whether it's intentional or not, it usually becomes a path towards weight loss. And so someone might start by first cutting out gluten and then cutting out dairy, excuse me, and then, you know, before you know it, they're not eating, you know, any processed foods, and then they go vegetarian, then they become vegan, and then it's a raw food diet, and they're going more and more and more restrictive. That restrictive eating is going to contribute to weight loss for most people. And so you can see how as the, if the psychological stress and and emotional turmoil is not treated with proper mental health interventions, that the nutritional side of the equation just gets more and more compromised and the person will become debilitated, malnourished, and sub and you know, at, at risk for all of those cardiac outcomes and, you know, death. Anorexia has the highest mortality rate of any psychiatric illness. Wow. And so if orthorexia is a slippery slope and a pathway to anorexia, we could put that in the same category. And so the concern is rightfully quite high. Right. You know, I would think, too, Dr. Quattromoni, that if if you're not eating well and you're malnourished, doesn't that affect your mental health? Of course. It's it's a bi-directional. Like... It's, it's a bi-directional and a very cyclical process. And so in treatment, when we are trying to treat these disorders, when someone is so severely malnourished, our first, first and foremost, we're trying to get them medically stable and re-nourish their brain mm. so that they can do more work in the psychotherapy and with nutrition education and learning how to refeed themselves. But in the beginning phases, we as dietitians and clinicians are doing the refeeding more aggressively because the brain is so impaired, it can shrink in, in size and mass. And so someone like that is not going to be functioning in their job or in school, right. right? Which is why sometimes people need to take a break from school or take a break from work to go into higher levels of treatment right. because they need to repair their brain. Right. One of the other things that's really important to distinguish, a lot of the eating disorders like anorexia and bulimia um, are very secretive. And that's because eating disorders in general have a fair amount of guilt and shame associated with them. Hmm. And so people suffering from those usually suffer in silence and try to keep it a secret and disguise their eating disorder or, you know, um, make excuses for their restrictive eating as, you know, oh, I have GI issues and I've cut out dairy or I'm vegetarian now. And and so it can remain very secretive. Whereas orthorexia tends to be a lot more public. Right. People are a lot more vocal. They're proud of it. It's right. a badge of honor. It's a sense of superiority. And so we might recognize it a little bit faster, which I think is a good thing because it raises red flags when people are, you know, Instagramming 24-7 every meal they're eating and they're, you know, 
putting out the sort of air of superiority or they are judging other people very harshly. Like if you listen carefully to people's words, sometimes you can pick up clues of somebody who's suffering from orthorexia because they there is a much more public tone in vocal discourse and social media presence around this. And certainly there are eating disorder fueled websites and whatnot, but again, they tend to be more like only the people in those chat rooms know about right, them, you know? Right. So that's another thing that you know, separates that, that's them. That's interesting you said that because there, unfortunately, and on Instagram, there's a hashtag, clean eating. Of course. And, and it's like, you know, it has its own hashtag, hashtag, and you're right, and people, you're right about the tone. People are proud as a peacock mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. they had this, what they consider clean foods, which is based on not based on science, so it's based on whatever influencer said that that mm-hmm. was a bad food or a food that you shouldn't, that's not clean, because it's dirty, I don't know what it is. And and right. so, you're right, they are proud as a peacock, and, and they make you feel bad. That's the, mm-hmm. and so you as, like, you're like, you feel bad because you had cereal in the morning, and why are you feeling bad you had cereal in the morning? This is exactly. fabulous. You know, it, and it's really, it's so interesting. And that's one of the things that leads to the social isolation because it can be very off-putting to friends or, you know, um, friends who, you know, hey, we used to go out for meals together and now, you know, so-and-so won't come anymore. And you quickly, after, when you turn them down for the 10th time, they're going to stop inviting you, right? right? It can interfere with family relationships because of sort of the judgmental tone that goes along with it. And and you're right, food photos and selfies are very Instagrammable and there's over 41 million clean eating hashtags. And, you know, everybody wants to be a part of it and jump on the bandwagon. And it stokes anxiety in the rest of us about our own choices or our own bodies or our own plates if they're not perfect enough. And so, you know, that's one of the things in terms of pushing people away right, right, um, right. because and, of this. And, and, you know, when you say that 40 million hashtags, my goodness gracious, then all of a sudden you start to think this is the norm because right. all you're following on Instagram or Twitter or anything is this clean eating like, cult, I guess right. you could say it is, if it gets to the extreme that it is. Um, and so you start thinking this is normal, you know, and these will become your friends. And then, you, you know, your, your outside friends start losing touch with you. I can see how you become more isolated and more mm-hmm. isolated. So what should we do? If, if you feel like, you know, your healthy eating habits are maybe getting to the point where you're not sure if you're going down the, that slippery slope, what should you do? Well, definitely you should seek some help, somebody that you trust, um, even if that's opening up to a parent or a Uh, you know, your best friend or your partner or a coach if you're an athlete. Um, An athletic trainer is a good place and person for an athlete to turn to. But ultimately, either find your way or find a trusted person who will guide you to a treatment professional. So there are many doors you can walk through. You can see a physician. You can see if you already have a psychiatrist, say if you have anxiety, right, have this conversation with your psychiatrist. Mm -hmm certainly walking through the door of a registered dietitian mm-hmm. or a mental health professional mm-hmm. therapist. Right. So ultimately, we want somebody who's suffering from this to get treatment sooner rather than later. Early intervention which actually really requires proper diagnosis, is the key to treatment and prevention of a worsening 
you know, and like I said, developing an anorexic condition, for example. So eating disorders are treatable. I'm here to tell you, I'm living proof of lots of people that I've worked with and treated. I work in eating disorder treatment. They are treatable. And so sooner rather than later, there's a common mistake in eating disorders of I'm not that sick. Right. Or I'm not sick enough or Mm -hmm. I'm not as sick as this person. Like in my stigma, stereotyped mind of what an eating disorder looks like, well, I'm not that. Mm -hmm. And that keeps a lot of people from seeking treatment. So we need people to recognize the warning signs in themselves or recognize the red flags in people that they love, have frank and honest conversations that start with, I'm really concerned about you because I've noticed. Right. And stick to the facts of what you observe and not being judgmental and not giving them a label or a diagnosis because you're not a clinician, right? Mm-hmm. You're just a concerned mm-hmm. parent or sibling or friend. And you know, ha- trying to have an honest conversation and get that person connected to someone who can help. So treatment involves a multidisciplinary team. So again, whichever of those doors is most safe to walk through first, that's an important door to walk through. And then, you know, we really hope and count on those people that have been trusted by the person suffering to come to and ask for help to connect them. Right. And, you know, when you talked about, you said a lot of it is with anxiety. So maybe you don't understand it's the anxiety that's causing you to try to get control of something so you're taking control of the food. So if you do it early in the game, I would imagine the health practitioner could say, whoa, 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 honey, it's, it's, it's not the food. It's just that you're, what, what are you anxious about? Let me help you with the anxiety so this way it doesn't spill over right. onto the table. And so catch it, catch it early. And, and what about all this, you know, social media? I mean... Yeah, social media has really fueled, because I think even clean eating in general has been fueled even by the obesity dem- epidemic mm. and the fear of obesity mm-hmm. and, again, a lot of weight stigma and mm-hmm. negative attention to that. Mm-hmm. And, and it so social media preys on our fears and anxieties right. and our insecurities about our bodies. And so, you know, it's just a breeding ground for mm-hmm. this, and it's so accessible. And it, right. it perpetuates information, but it also perpetuates misinformation. We have to be really careful about who we follow and how much time we're spending on social media and who we are letting influence us. Right. And you know, you're right, Dr. Quattroni, because the misinformation gets more of the retweets and gets more of of the public eye rather than the correct information. So so it's it's as health professionals, you know, I'm very big on social media, you're on social media. You know, we're trying to get the message out, but you know, unfortunately that has a larger megaphone, I guess if you want to say Yeah, it becomes an echo chamber because people just retweet. And the truth is is that like you said earlier the most outrageous things are likely to get retweeted. Right. And a lot, for a lot of people, social media and Twitter sound bites do not prompt critical thinking. Right. And people take the sound bite and they run with it, but they never even click on the article to read it or click on the scientific paper that might be cited in that media article that leads you to the science to say, oh, this maybe has been overstated. This maybe you know, there might be more to it than this. And people are very quick to grab on. I mean, social media promotes pop culture and what's trending. Right. That's not science. I have to tell you this very interesting story that's sad. Uh, I I was on Twitter and it said, uh, don't eat, study says don't eat blank, right? So I get to the study, read the study, and what, what the study said was, well, 
it didn't really wasn't significant. Mm-hmm. So it had nothing to do like right. like the findings weren't significant. So so why are you telling your people have to do that? And you know, so the research wasn't telling people right. to do that. What it was was the the, the byline. Mm-hmm. The byline did not match with the research, right. and there goes your critical and thinking. The Twitter headlines and the little listicles, you know, five superfoods right. or ten foods never to eat. Right. That's uh, there's a lot of people who they are satisfied by that. Right. And they will take that and run with it and never even question the source. And that's what's so dangerous because the critical thinking, it's like blind faith. Right. It's like the blind leading right. the blind when you that's have right. unqualified people right. writing that. And, and right. these influencers um, make me really nervous in that regard because I don't think that's an acceptable way to take care of our health. That's right. So I get, it's a, a pickle message here is that make sure when you're following health or nutrition or medical information, you're following it by credible health professionals in their field. That's right. And because he, he or she is a doctor doesn't make he or she a nutrition expert. Correct. I am a nutrition expert. You're a t- nutrition expert as a registered dietitian nutritionist. But don't come to me for if you want a, um, you know, orthopedic surgery. I'm not going to give you any right. advice on orthopedic surgery, nor should I. And I think you have to really be careful with that. Just because it's a medical person doesn't mean it's, a, it's based on nutrition science. Go to the nutrition expert, which is that registered dietitian nutritionist. So I, I'm so excited that we had this conversation because I really was not aware that this orthorexia could go down a path that could make it really health problematic. I, I thought it was just this fad thing going on here. But this could be very, very serious. So, again, if you think you have an issue, open one of those doors, that yeah. was you said. And I think what's also important, if you know of somebody who you think has an issue and you ask them out 10 times and they stop going out with you, don't just close the door on them. Yeah. Let's let's have a conversation. Let's help them get help yes. rather than leave them at home. Because you're right. There's a there's a lot of maybe shame and and they, they become introverted and they're not seeking out help. So let's help our neighbors. Absolutely. If we to do Don't that. give up. You need to be persistent because right. with any of these eating disorders, again, because of the shame and the guilt that go along with them. Um, you should expect denial. People right. will deny that there's a problem. Right. Again, that's just sort of the mentality and the mindset that, you know, w- what I'm doing is for the pursuit of my health and I'm doing everything to take care of my health. Or for an athlete, I'm trying to be the best athlete I right. can be. But, um, you know, so you want to expect that, but you can still say, but I have concerns because right. I've noticed this right. or because you've stopped coming out with us or, you know, it looks to me like you've lost a significant amount of weight and I'm concerned. Right in really sticking with those valid observations. Um, And sometimes you have to have that conversation two, three, four times. Um, And sometimes the person who's suffering might need to hear it from a parent and then a coach and then their best friend Friend, and when they've heard it from five people. So adding your voice to that and not being afraid to express your concern and empathy for what the person's struggling with and know that they are in deep emotional distress and turmoil over this, you know, be really sensitive in how you approach that. Right. Good, 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 good advice. Well, that was great. Thank you so much. I hope that, you know, we got a lot um, better understanding, or or as I started this segment, we got the clean facts about (laughs) clean eating. Um, And, you know, um, I'm all for having a plant-forward diet, eating healthy foods the majority of the time, but, you know, um, uh, I've seen you too. I know you like your cupcakes. I like my cupcakes. And, Absolutely. you know, hello. You know, and it doesn't have to be our <laughs> birthday either for us to have cupcakes. I also wanted to mention that Dr. Quattrimoni was interviewed just recently in Vogue magazine 
uh, all about this issue. And, and the title of the article is, is Orthorexia, the Eating Disorder for the Digital Age, which uh, let me tell you, what a fascinating title. So we are going to put that article up on the Spot On Facebook page so you can read more. Boy, when it starts becoming uh, getting in Vogue magazine, we know we have something um, to talk about. All right, Dr. Quadrimoni, I want to thank you so much for coming on Spot On. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Spot On. Please subscribe to Spot On on your favorite podcast app for new episodes every week. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Blake, And also like our Spot On Facebook page and suggest topics for future episodes. And oh, by the way, could you ask five of your friends or family members to download Spot On and subscribe to it? Do I ask a lot from you?